Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, November the 1st, 2022, book day. New books out this week, including a really important new book called Bravo Company and Afghanistan Deployment and its Aftermath by my guest today, Ben Kessling, who you will also probably know as, uh, as a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter. We've done a lot of shows on, the, on Afghanistan. I've even wrote something about how we remember and forget America's, at least in my view, terrible mistake, tragic mistake in Afghanistan. The best way to remember, of course, is to write books. And we've had a number of authors on the show uh, who have written important books on Afghanistan. One of the most impressive was with uh, Elliot Ackerman, uh, whose book came out earlier this year, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan, seeing the Afghanistan adventure as a classic tragedy. Uh, another book that came out earlier this year, um, written by Major Tom Schumann and uh, Zainullah Zaki, an Afghan um, translator, was about the relationship between American um, soldiers and Afghan interpreters. Another book by Jason Kandor, a very distinguished American politician who went to Afghanistan, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. And we've done other shows with veterans, including with Christopher Kalenda, a veteran who believes that um, we can learn something as human beings from the American involvement in Afghanistan. So a lot of writers, a lot of books. But as I said, this new book by uh, uh, Ben Kessling uh, has got great reviews uh, and it's an important contribution to the literature. Ben is joining me from the roadside in Austin, Texas. Uh, he's a soldier, so he knows how to deal with emergency situations. The book launches tonight. Uh, ben, congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, apologies for talking to you on the side of the road in Austin. We're just driving around doing the book launch. Well, no need to apologize, Ben. I appreciate your selflessness in doing this. Um, there's a whole literature, almost libraries full now, books on Afghanistan, as there were on Vietnam. What is your new book trying to do, which hasn't been done before? Bravo Company. Well, um, what I want to do with Bravo Company is to take you through deployment and then bring you back home. So it, the subtitle is a, a Afghanistan deployment and its aftermath. And the, to see that bright line that goes through uh, military service from enlisting or joining as an officer, getting ready to deploy, going through a harrowing deployment, and then 10 years of coming home and trying to um, trying to deal with all the feelings, good, bad, awful, fantastic, uh, this sort of the, the, the spectrum of feelings and uh, that you get with the experience of war. And I wanted to write this book to inform civilians uh, who have never been in a combat zone and maybe don't know anybody in the military uh, about what, what it's like, what all those parts of it are like. Uh, and then also to help people who have been there to help veterans who have experienced combat, experienced war, um, to see their story uh, through another unit's light, but to be able to see that story and help them explain um, what it was all about, what it was like, what the feelings they're having are, and that others 
uh, others are similarly having it. So, uh, those are sort of the multi, uh, you know, the multifaceted aspect of, of what I was trying to do with this book. You're not just a Wall Street Journal reporter, uh, but you also have a, a master's degree in divinity from Harvard Divinity School. And you've also served in the Marine Corps Infantry. Um, yeah. And on top of all that, you're a Jeopardy champion. Uh, in terms of your Marine Corps experience, do you think that's essential to write this kind of book? Do you think you need to be in war or at least have some experience of it in order to write the kind of book you've written? Um, yes, I think so. Um, but I think that there's a really interesting aspect of writing this book. And I've, uh, I've been talking to some of the people from Bravo Company and um, uh, and, and some folks from the Army about this. So I'm a Marine. I served as a Marine infantryman, but I'm writing about an Army unit. And I think it was it's so important with, with literature of war that we often soldiers, Marines, sailors, airmen, Coast Guardsmen, everybody wants to tell their story of combat or of, of service. But it often devolves into bad memoir. Right. Like we always think our story is the best story. We want to retell all war stories. And that's uh, that can be a dead end for telling a meaningful book that uh, brings that brings resolution to yourself as the author and to the folks that you're uh, that you're hoping will read the book. I think that by being a Marine and having the experience of being a Marine Corps infantryman, I have the language and the experience to talk to these soldiers who uh, these these army soldiers who are infantrymen and talk about their experience. But it's foreign enough that it's still not not um, not in my backyard. Right. Like I'm a Marine having to write about soldiers and having to translate that world, but also by writing about a bunch of soldiers instead of a group of Marines or even my own story, it keeps me out of it. Like, it's so important, I think, for us to realize that when we're telling stories, we're telling stories about other people. That's the meaningful story. And, um, and in, by my, my sort of background, my experience was, is, enables me to be a translator of sorts of, of a unit's, of a unit's yeah, It's funny you think of yourself as a, as a translator. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, uh, the Schumann-Zaki book on um, Always Faithful between yes. uh, a U.S. Uh, soldier and a translator. Do you think of yourself then in that sense, perhaps like one of those Afghan translators who did a lot of the heavy lifting right. well, of the American um, army? I, yes, and but um, I guess using even translator is the wrong word. It's interpreter, right? Um, in the military, uh, the you're, you know, in the, if, if you if you have someone from the uh, someone who lives locally who who helps you understand the local language and cultures and mores, um, they're they're not um, they're not translating. They're interpreting, and I think that that's uh, you know I almost misspoke by saying I'm a translator. It's I'm almost of an interpreter because. Um, the, the Afghan interpreters, like you talked about, they don't just interpret language and translate it from translate it directly from English to um, to Pashto or Dari and then back again. They interpret it to get the to get the nuance out of out of language and to get the nuance out of body language, to get the nuance out of cultural understanding, out of what is happening in this particular place and time. And in that way, I very much do see uh, my work as being as being an interpreter. And um, as translating language, but then taking that language uh, and then doing more with it. So it interprets it uh, and gives it a greater sort of not a greater meaning, but a more concentrated meaning, I guess, uh, that I do very much see myself in that in that light. It's funny. We did a show yesterday 
a new book about a very different subject, uh, late 18th century um, in uh, Anglo-Chinese interpreters, two interpreters in the developing British-Chinese relationship, again, making interpretation the core of the matter. So, Ben, uh, as an introduction, perhaps you might be an interpreter for our audience um, and, and tell us about uh, this 82nd Airborne Bravo company. What exactly is it? And very briefly, what did they go through during the Afghan war? Sure. Uh, so this company of, uh, of a little, you know, a little over 100 soldiers, uh, not not the largest unit that you'll that you'll ever see. Certainly not a division, but a company that allows allows us to focus on their stories. Um, this company deployed to Afghanistan. They had some time doing um, advising and assisting of, of uh, Afghan forces, and then their mission was changed about halfway through the deployment, and they were put on a purely combat mission down in the Argandab Valley. And once they made it to the Argandab Valley, they found themselves in a land that was filled with filled with IEDs and, um, and this is part of uh, Kandahar province, which was one that of is the, correct. Yeah. the centers and, of the U.S. war there. And they very rarely found themselves um, in face-to-face -face combat with the Taliban. What they found was the detritus of what the Taliban left behind, uh, which is IEDs. So they went out on patrol every day um, and they pushed through areas that were laden with IEDs they lost some soldiers, um, had men who were maimed, uh, and uh, nearly half the company received Purple Hearts. And which is um, an astonishing number. It, it was an amazing number. Of, and then there's, you know, there's in any military unit, there's people who are injured who don't receive Purple Hearts, right? Um, nobody gives you a Purple Heart for getting your bell rung if you're standing next to a, an IED that goes off, uh, even though those types of things can come back and haunt you, uh, both physically and mentally, years later down the road. So this company, they had a harrowing experience in Afghanistan, uh, and then they came home. And I follow them when they come home and talk about them as veterans. Some stayed in, some got out, some got out willingly, some got out because their bodies would not allow them to stay in anymore. And um, I talk about what that experience is like of, of trying, to trying to figure out how to come back home. And that's not to say that that's not to say that all these men had some sort of deep-seated trauma or something. I, I talk about there's a veteran template or a veteran script that we often follow, right? Like veteran goes to war, veteran gets hurt, veteran comes home, veteran is broken. And that's certainly not the case because the variety of the veteran experience is as multifaceted as war and as multifaceted as life itself. And, the, and, and these men from this company and the people who depended on them, they're uh, their spouses, their families, they all had different experiences of war. And I tried to, I tried to give both um, a breadth of explanation on, uh, on, on those experiences and then a depth. So talk about all the different types of experience and then drill down to really um, bring the picture home for what those experiences are like for someone uh, who, who comes home from, from combat. You describe yourself as an interpreter. An interpreter tries to, as you suggest, stand back from the action but were you forced in the writing of this book to control your own emotions particularly perhaps your temper your anger at this failed war maybe you disagree but it seems to me to be a failed war um one of the one of the great things about about 
having gotten out of the Marine Corps and becoming a journalist who covers war and conflict is I get to have great meaning. I, I make great meaning with my life by doing, by telling people stories and telling about combat uh, and trying to get to a deeper, um, a deeper truth on these things. And when I'm working, it, that all stays in check um, and is able to stay in check because uh, my goal is to do, my goal is to tell the most well-rounded best story possible. Um, I do in the author's note for the book, I do talk about my experience when I did have some downtime and sort of the, the weight of telling an entire company's story and trying to go from soup to nuts and talk about pre-deployment to deployment to afterwards, that, that hit me. Um, and I realized, uh, the, the importance of telling it well. And I tried to, you know, I try to keep my own, I try to keep any kind of politics out of this book. I try to make it about these men and about the conflict itself and, um, to not, to not cast any partisan sort of, um, you know, put any partisan tones, tones or shades to it, but to talk about war and what's happening in Afghanistan in as, in as objective a manner as I can, which I know is an impossible thing to do, but I tried my best for it. Um, and it's, you know, after it's, after it's all said and done and the book is out and I get to think about, you know, think about it, uh, what I've done, what I've done well and what I've done, maybe could have done better with the book. That's the sort of the, the sort of thing that causes emotions is uh, wondering if I've served if I've served these men well in telling their story and if I've served the American public and ever picks up this book well um, by translating and interpreting uh, a military unit's experience in war and after war if I've done that well and that that is the sort of thing that rests heavily on me. One of the reviews and the early reviews have been very positive, Ben. Um describes the book it's your first book as gut gut wrenching uh i assume you would take that as as a compliment is it designed to be a gut wrenching or is it just the story that's so gut wrenching that the gut wrenching quality of the book and the narrative is unavoidable uh I, there is an unavoidability to it and i'm glad you asked that question because um the there is there are very descriptive scenes of, of, of violent death in the book. But I have, I've written the book in such a way that those descriptive scenes of violent death aren't meant to be tawdry or titillating or um, it's like pornographic or something in their violence. They're meant to show you the unvarnished truth of what it means to see a friend blow up, to smell what it's like after a friend is blown up, um, and in that way, yes, the, you know, I, I find it, it is a compliment to say that those scenes are gut wrenching, but I want to make sure that, 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 um, that, that gut wrenching aspect comes from just the visceral, the visceral truths of war and not from pumping up the, um, you, you know, t taking out the equalizer and pumping up the levels in some way. I try to give it, I try to, to tell as sort of straight as I can, this is, this is what happens when a man is eviscerated by an IED. This is what happens when a man knows he's going to lose his arm. Um, this is what happens when a man is uh, after the after the after the uh, after the event itself goes back and realizes he was he had the the possibility of changing of changing time and history itself if he would have pulled the trigger and killed a suicide bomber, but he didn't. And 
what goes through someone's mind when they have that sort of eternal replaying of the what ifs. So yes, I think gut wrenching is fair, but um, not in a way that is is done sheerly um, sheerly to make you feel to make you feel um, to make you feel sickness or something. There's 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 a more um, there, there's a deeper aspect to it that it's not it's not uh, um, cheap thrills or something. Speaking of truths of war, you wrote it's a simple truth that men who go to war want an orgasm of violence for the sake of violence itself. Don't let them tell you any different. Um, if that is indeed true, then should we have any sympathy at all for these men who, for for the reason of, of, of wanting an orgasm of violence, went into war? I don't know. Andrew, I don't know if um, if we should. I mean, I think about that with myself um, in, in retrospect uh, for my service. Um, and I think that a lot of men and women who serve in in the military ask themselves that very question. Um, and I think that that does lead to, um, does, does lead to a lot of the issues that, uh, that face men and women who have trouble coming back from combat and adjusting to adjusting the civilian world and adjusting to the reality that they took part in something that is so extraordinary and outside of the realm of what should be normal life, which is just going to war, whether it's a good war, a bad war and an indifferent war. Uh, and we uh, ask anybody, uh, you know, it may take a beer or two to, to get them to talk about it honestly, but ask any veteran about that and see what, see what, the, see what you drill down to. Because you drill down very quickly. You can scratch the surface of, of glossy patriotism very quickly. And underneath of it is questioning of why did I do this? Was it a good thing? What did it do for me? Was it a good thing? What did it do for the people who served around me for the people who were affected in a combat zone, uh, for the for my the combatants on the other side of uh, of war, but I do think that while um, those who go to war, there is there is this this idea. I mean, from the time you sign up at boot camp to be an infantryman, you are signing up to fulfill fulfill the desire to have that orgasm of violence in a in in a combat zone. And yet, um, along the way, perhaps the, we, we, we get a depth of understanding of humanity um, that should make us sympathetic. And to ourselves and to those who have served, I know that um, it's thanks to my time in the Marine Corps, thanks to being a service member, um, that combines with, uh, you know, there's a, there's a brew of, of all the mix of my history, right, of, of going to college, of getting a master divinity degree of, of going, you know, friends and family that I've known, those all, those are all things that tune your moral compass and what, what makes you want to do something. And I think that being in the Marine Corps and having those, those very deep existential questions of, of why was I here? What did I do this for? Was it a good thing? Um, has, has more finely attuned that moral compass. And I say that in talking to Bravo Company, I've had to um, I've had to interrogate my own background and my own experience, and I realized with a deep sadness um, that there are so many things in this world that I need to atone for that I could have done better, chances that I've squandered, things that I've not done well, um, and I think that comes in large part out of retrospective um, 
retrospective thinking about my Marine Corps experience. But at the same time, that's held in tension with this, this wonderful, um, this wonderful ability that we have, uh, that we all have and that I have to, um, to redeem ourselves for whatever we've done wrong in this world or to find redemption in the things that we've done. So yeah, I guess, no, the men and women who go to combat for the sake of combat, they don't deserve any of our sympathy, but, um, the men and women who go to combat on our behalf also deserve all our sympathy. Uh, there's no black and white in this world. There's infinite shades of gray. And I think once you have, uh, been to war, uh, you, you see more acutely those infinite shades. Speaking of a moral compass, um, your book has been blurred by a number of people, including Elliot, um, Ackerman and also another guest, very impressive guest I thought we had on the show, Phil Clay, has a new book out, Another Ex-Serviceman, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in, in an Age of Endless Invisible War. Clay, as you know, believes strongly in the idea of national service as a way of, if you like, democratizing war or the, or the, the military experience. What, where do you stand in terms of this experience of writing about Bravo Company uh, in the context of the national service argument, might it might it have made this war ultimately more successful or more, shall we say, morally palatable had everyone gone rather than just a few professional soldiers? I don't know. I think that there. I think that war is the most is one of the most complicated. Um, algorithmic uh, algorithmic problems that we can ever hope to face, and we don't know what the dependent and independent variables are. Uh, and if we try to if we try to pretend like we can understand, if we mess with the x or the y here, uh, that it will change the it will change the other side of the equation. I think we're fooling ourselves. Um, but at the same time, right, that we can ask: is there is there a need for uh, is there a need for national service required national service? I can only say that. I can't imagine my life if I had not um, if I had not done my time in service. I cannot imagine having not done that for a number of reasons, both for service to my country, um, for um, the desire um, to 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 go to combat and see what that is like, um, the desire to be a part uh, I, to be a part of something bigger. I think that I, I I'm very. I'm very proud and happy that I served, even though, um, as anyone else who has been in does, uh, you know, you question what was it for and, and what was the ultimate, uh, what was the ultimate good that, uh, that it did for the world. Um, but I can't imagine having done anything else. And I think that, um, we, we're, we're, we live in a world now where there's, um, there's more questioning of that maybe of, of, of sort of, what might be thought of blind service to, uh, to country, but there's so much, there's so many ways that we can serve our fellow man and doesn't have to be in uniform or if it's in uniform, perhaps it's in a nurse's or doctor's uniform. And, um, but I think that doing whatever we do with our lives, uh, in a way that's, that is, that attempts to be as selfless as possible, which is an impossibility, uh, because of just the nature of the nature of life and of human of human striving, right? Like we're always going to be hypocrites when it comes to trying to say that we want to serve serve our fellow man as best we can, but um, but we can we can do our damn best to 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 
to serve others. And uh, whether that's military service as an infantryman, military service as, um, you know, a cook, a welder, uh, a computer programmer, there's all kinds of ways to serve in the military. And there's, uh, there's also plenty of other ways to serve. Uh, so I think we should all find a way to do that. I know that's, uh, that may be a, a too vague of an answer or some sort of like a Pollyanna-ish answer, but that's, uh, that's the way I feel about it. And let's go briefly back to the book, Bravo Company and Afghanistan deployment and its aftermath. You, you talked about the standard narrative that everyone knows. People go off to war, they're brutalized, they come back and they're even more brutalized. What new strand in the narrative do you think, if any, your book adds? Is it just the complexity of the fact that you cannot stereotype any of these narratives, that everyone has their own story and every story is different? Yes. And I think that um, a lot of times we can, um, you know, we can just, we can say, hey, <laughs> sorry, somebody's parking behind me. Well, as long as it's not the Taliban, right? Yikes. This is uh, what happens when you're on the road, I reckon. Yeah. Well, you've had experience in Afghanistan. You can deal with a, a, a pirate parker uh, in Austin, Texas. So, um, yeah, I, the, what I tried to do with this is to tell the complex story, but to tell it in a, to tell it in an accessible way. I think a lot of times, um, when we try to talk about complexity and, you know, if we're having a conversation say, oh, it's just, it's too complex. I throw my hands up. I can't really, I can't explain it. But, um, when you take a story, individual stories of individual people and individual, um, individual events and actions that happen and drill down into those, you get data points that you can talk about. And at the end of it, if you can say, hey, this thing is just way too complex to come up with a definitive, a definitive description of, I think that by plotting out those various data points, um, it, it's like the way the way you plot out um, the way you plot out a line is by you put um, you put dots along an edge and then you connect them. Right. Uh, that's the way you plot out any shape is connect the dots. And I think that by having these dots that are accessible and understandable, um, it, it connects, it, it can give us an idea of that, of that, um, of that complex picture in a way that maybe, um, maybe other books have not been able to do and in, in an accessible way. So you can read about the complexity without having to, without having to just throw your hands up and say, all right, I guess there's no, I guess there's no answer here. Uh, whereas the answer that I want you that I want folks to come away with is, well, the answer is more complex than than what we can solve in in, in one book or one one deployment or one soldier's story, uh, and uh, it's something that we need to take home and tarry with for a long time to try to come up with an, an answer to. Final question, Ben, because I know you need to get to your um, your next Thank you. in Austin. Um, you say you want to separate yourself from politics of this, but that's really hard. You work for the Wall Street Journal. It's a relatively conservative newspaper owned by Rupert Murdoch. It's not Fox News. It's the respectable side, I guess, of the Murdoch empire, especially the reporting side. But you wrote a piece recently about the a GOP House report that sets the stage for a potential probe into the Afghanistan withdrawal. It certainly wasn't Joe Biden's finest hour. Do you think that Biden disgraced America, and should there be an investigation of what happened? I think that a lot of the people that I talked to um, who served in Afghanistan, 
who invested time and treasure and blood in Afghanistan, um, were very disappointed with the way that it, that Afghanistan ended. And I don't think, I mean, I, I don't think that the end of Afghanistan um, and leaving there is, um, that's not the, that's not the story. There's so much more to it. There's so much more backstory. What are we doing for 20 years there? What do we do to set the stage to leave under prior presidencies? What do we do to not, not succeed there with prior presidencies? The withdrawal, uh, the withdrawal under the Biden administration was just the sort of final act that happened in this. Uh, in, the fifth in act, this, to borrow uh, Elliot Ackerman's phrase, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's there's there's. Um, I think that there's plenty of blame to go around. <laughs> um, yeah, with, I don't think anyone would argue with you on that one. Uh, wonderful uh, conversation, uh, Ben. Congratulations again on the book. Um, it's called Bravo Company, an Afghanistan deployment in its aftermath. Uh, finally, I usually ask my guests for a, um, a suggestion of another book. For you, I, I wonder, who's your favorite war writer? What, what books about war have really influenced you? Not necessarily about Afghanistan, but about Vietnam or any other war. Right. Thanks for asking me that. I... Um... I really like um, in college, before I before I joined the military, I really loved the poetry of Alan Seeger, um, who volunteered to to go fight uh, to go fight in World War One uh, before the American before the American military joined. Um, I found Alan Seeger's poetry um, uh, to be uh, to be to be wonderful. Um, but now that I've and I've and I've always loved Kurt Vonnegut's work, mm. and after having served. I go back and I, every so often I go back and read Slaughterhouse Five again, and after having served and gotten out and worked with, uh, it was actually after I was uh, in the middle of writing this book, Bravo Company, that I read Slaughterhouse Five again, and I realized how incisive it is, and how uh, how crazy it is to that anyone would ever label that book science fiction because it's not science fiction; it's reality. It's what the it's the reality of what what men and women who have been in war and have seen time come unstuck. Um, does to them. Uh, there's the men, the men in Bravo Company who I talk about. There are a number of them who slip, slip through time in ways that uh, unless you, unless you've been in sort of a tragic accident or war or something, you don't realize how malleable time is. And Vonnegut really, he nailed it with Slaughterhouse Five. So that's that might be the one. 